Blog Talk Radio. King Wave, Fox, Beer, Locker's acting very weird. Captain Pike, Cisco's wife, Klingons, and the afterlife. Boimler, Tendy's dog, Ransom is very hot. Four Drive, Black Alert, Giorgio has gone berserk. Teacher, bad left, Edward is an idiot, Fuck is dead, Wolf is wed, Chekhov's wearing red. Peter's cat, Kim Peck's cat, you have said enough of that. Beam me up, make it so, everybody let's go. We are Well, good evening, Trekkies and Trekkers around the globe. With that song, it's time for another awesome episode of Trek Talk. And I'm your most excellent host, Uncle Jim. And with me, as usual, are my Trexperts. And we'll start out with Eric. Eric's out in Portland. How are you doing tonight, Eric? I am doing very, very well. We are having just another beautiful day in Portland, perfect fall weather, and uh, we have some awesome Star Trek to talk about tonight and an awesome guest. I'm pretty stoked. Yes, we do. We have a great show planned for you guys. And we also have with us Charles. Charles is out in Las Vegas as usual. How are you doing tonight, Charles? I'm doing good, but I don't think Jim really wants to hear about my weather report. No, uh, I don't. Someone put a mem, <laughs> somebody put a mem and joke meme out there joke we think we think our winter weather is sitting on one uh sitting somewhere on long beach in uh one of the carriers out there <laughs> yeah uh, we're hitting an unusual unusual temperatures is hitting 70 in december Wow. We hit, an all, we hit a record high of 75 yesterday. Wow. Well, we're not we here. Next, we're starting to see 60 next week, maybe. But, wow. Well, yeah. well not, not, not up here in Vermont. We'll be lucky if we hit 30. So, guys, our phone number here is 646-668-2433, and you want to put that in speed dial, and you want to have that ready for two reasons. The first reason, of course, is that we're going to be joined by Doug Brody um, momentarily. Uh, Secondly, uh, we have an autographed picture of Lieutenant Arian played by Sarah Mitch from Star Trek Discovery Season 1 that we want to give away to you. But you have to call 646-668-2433. When we do our birthday segment and we say happy birthday to Sarah, the first caller to call will win that autographed photo. The phone number here is 646-668-2433. Give us a call when you hear the birthday song, and I will drop that autographed photo in the mail and send it right off to you, okay? So let's just dive in and get started. We're also going to be talking about Star Trek Discovery Um, Episode 2, Anomaly, which aired on Thanksgiving weekend. We'll be doing that a little bit later. We kind of shook up the show a little bit to get Doug on first. So let me get this straight here. I don't want to make a mistake. So uh, uh, Doug is the prop illustrator, correct, Doug? Because I think it's the prop illustrator. I said prop master, but that was my mistake. He was the illustrator, actually, uh, on Star Trek 2009. 
He was also the storyboard and conceptual artist uh, for Iron Man, Thor, Looper, Van Helsing, Planet of the Apes, and Men in Black International. Uh, He had a 25-year career, so he's done a lot of stuff. Uh, He's also the creator of the HBO series Forbidden Science, and he has a brand-new novel out called The Ship. So if you'd like to call and uh, talk with, with Doug, if you have a question for Doug, please give us a call at 646-668-2433, and we will get you right on the air with Doug. So get to dial in, and we'll get you right on the air. So uh, welcome to the show, Doug. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. So before we start, what exactly does a prop illustrator do? Okay, well, um, a prop illustrator designs all of the uh, weapons and anything that an actor would touch. So um, for Star Trek, uh, I designed... um, somewhere between four or 500 weapons probably and doodads. So that was the tricorder. That was the uh, Romulan weapons. There was a lot of Klingon weapons that I sketched up and that they did build and they actually filmed and then none of it made into the movie. Um, I mean, no, they spent so much on, on the Klingon stuff that you probably could make a small little independent movie with it. Um, Cause wow. they shot that all. And uh, so we spent, forever just on the Klingon stuff. But um, yeah, so I sketch up all the, the drawings for what everything's going to look like. And then the director will walk by, in this case it was JJ, and he would just say, I like this one, I like that one. And then they build it up to scale of the drawing. So well, what was it like to work on the very first, the Star Trek reboot, to go back into something that's so noticeable and so loved by so many fans and to recreate it but not change it so much that it's no longer recognizable well um it was it was you know I, i've been doing this like you said i don't know it was 25 i think 22 let's let's keep me a little bit younger i think i've been doing 22 years it was probably in 22 years one of my top two or three films ever i i'm extremely proud of that movie um and uh, i grew up with star trek so i i knew all about it and i kind of had to put it all aside to, to come up with something new um, but it was helpful because you, you, if you know all the stuff that the Romulans and the Klingons had and you put it away, then you kind of know, well, at least organically wh- where you're going from, you know, even though I never looked at a single Star Trek book, I knew what that stuff looked like so that I could then go in a different direction. Wow. And so you worked on the Klingons. Did you design the Klingon helmets that the Klingons wore in that brief scene? No, that would be the costume people. Um, okay. So anything that somebody wears is costume. Um, but, like, um, if you look in the Art of Star Trek, I know a bunch of my stuff is in there. Um, that Art of Star Trek, obviously, for, for that film. Um, I like the, the bad – I can't remember. What was the bad guy's name? Nero. He had a spear. Nero. The things come out. And um, – uh, you know, so I, I did all that stuff. I designed all that stuff, and you know, I gave him a very what I call the serpentine serpentine staff. So I wanted it to be like a snake where the blades came out. Originally, they were going to be like CGI blades, um, but I guess that got cut down to just little blades that just kind of popped up a little bit, like Wolverine's claws. Um, and uh, you know, it's, it, it was it was a really interesting experience. Like the the very first time I met JJ. So what happens is on a prop when you're doing doing prop illustration, at least on the films that I've done, 
usually you work for about a week, and then after that week, the director looks at it and either he approves them or he doesn't. If he doesn't approve them, they just bring in another guy. Um, so I did it for a week, and I did a bunch of sketches, I don't know, 30, 40 drawings, and then they put them up in a wall, and then I wait outside while a whole group of people, I mean, there must have been like 30 of them, go in there to review my drawings. They close the door, deciding my fate. And J.J.'s one of those people. And at the time, J.J. wasn't huge director or anything. He had done um, Mission Impossible 3 or something. And I just knew him from Lost. I don't think I'd even seen the, that movie at the time. And um, so they're, they're discussing stuff. And then they, they called me in. And then a bunch of my drawings had little uh, stickers on them, which meant they got approved. So I was like, okay, good. I get to work another few more months. Um, and then they're having this whole conversation. And... Keep in mind, I never talked to anybody in this, in this thing. And there's like 30 or 40 people in this room, and they're all having this conversation. And they're talking about the money they're going to use for the bar scene. And <laughs> I raise my hand in the middle of the meeting like a school child. And, and I'm like, excuse me. And the whole room just stops and looks over and like, Who, who's this guy? And, uh, you know, dead silence. And, and my boss, the prop master, is just turning green. He's like, oh, God, what, what are you doing? And I said, well, uh, actually, J.J., there's no money in Star Trek. I said, you know, um, Gene Roddenberry didn't have money in Star Trek. I designed it for you guys because you asked for it. But I just wanted you to know that, you know, that wasn't originally part of, you know, his vision. And just like dead silence in this meeting. And everybody's just looking at me like, are you kidding? And then J.J. goes, is that real? And he turns to his, his assistant and goes, is that, that, that's true? He's like, yeah, actually, I, I think it is. Oh. Next thing you know, they cut it out of the movie. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we had designed all this money and stuff, and he did cut it out of the film. And that shows, you know, how adaptive um, J.J. was. And he was open to anybody's ideas, including an artist who literally just, like, dropped out of the sky, and, you know, nobody in the meeting knew who I was. So, you know, that, that always stuck with me when I think back to this project. It was that very first time that I met him. Wow. And I, I know I noticed that uh, you were you also were the uh, technical advisor for Star Trek 2009. <laughs> What's funny about that is in the art of Star Trek, they called me a quote-unquote Star Trek expert. You know what that means? It means I was the guy who'd seen Star Trek. Because you have to understand oh. that 90% of the people that worked on this film were specifically chosen because they weren't Trekkies or Trekkers or whatever the term is supposed to be. They're not um, – they, they weren't fans. And, and that's why they were chosen. Because, I mean – which I get, because, I mean, if you put yourself in JJ's shoes, you're coming into this, you're trying to reboot it. It's hard to reboot it if everybody's a big fan of the stuff that came before because you're not working with a blank slate. So everybody was aware, of course, that, that you know, Shatner and all that, but they were trying to give it a, a blank slate. Um, so I, was, I think I, I, they put me down as Star Trek expert in that art of Star Trek book, really, because I'd seen the show. <laughs> wow. Well, I was the guy well, no. who like, knew the difference. I, like nobody even knew the word Frank. Like I would guarantee you, I was the only person around there, except for maybe JJ's assistant, who knew Frangi, you know, or any of these, you know, uh, words that weren't in that specific script. Wow. Well, we we reviewed Star Trek 2009 on the podcast, and everybody just overwhelmingly agreed that the casting for that movie was perfect. Um, yeah, yeah, no, they did a great per- job. A perfect, and for you're saying that these people weren't Star Trek fans, but it would never show in the quality of the movie. It wasn't that um, they weren't fans; it's just that they weren't. Um, I mean, like they appreciated what came before, but gen- definitely the the 
the general consensus of the people that were built around JJ and his team were not, you know, Trekkies. They, they were, they were people that, that were aware of it and they wanted to update it for today. And so they never really looked at the past. You know, they certainly were aware of what the costume and stuff looked like. I mean, it's not like they didn't know anything, but they, they weren't, they weren't like, Oh my God, we're going to create a new Star Trek. Like it were, they were like, we're creating a new science fiction film and we're using that as a template. You know, a lot of those Klingon scenes that you're talking about are on the DVD, and maybe maybe when they put it out in 4K, we'll get a director's cut, and we can see all those scenes put back in the movie. He wouldn't like, put them back um, in. He never wanted to do them, I don't think. He, I, I he never, never got the vibe that, that, he was, he, that J.J. was really big on doing the Klingon thing. I think that the studio wanted the, J, the, the Klingons. I don't think he'd put them back in. The problem with the Klingons was that it was a big detour in the middle of your story and um it it it, it doesn't help the story at all it, the only thing that it would have helped is where's this guy been for the last 20 years which does you know some people i'm sure were wondering that when they see the movie um but outside of that that's their only function so to cut away for 15 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever that screen time was just to explain that i really doubt he would put that back in and somebody else might but i can't imagine jj would Wow. So, so Doug, what was what was it like working with JJ on the set? What 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 can you tell us? Well, about I, I was never on set. I, mean, I, I do I do all of what's called pre-production. So, ninety percent of my jobs are storyboard jobs, but I also do a lot. Of, I I've done a lot of concept art and stuff. But everything I do is is pre-production. So I was I was there when they built the the, the bridge set, and um, but I'm not there when they're shooting on the bridge set. Because if your illustrators are still on set the day you start shooting, you've got real problems. <laughs> you don't want any illustrators still designing stuff <laughs> when you're shooting. It happens, but it's never a good thing. Did Did you get a chance to sit in the captain's chair? I totally did. When nobody was around, oh. I, I did. I did. Oh. I, I, I tell, tell us about I, it. <laughs> 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 it was nice, you know. It was. It, I couldn't take a picture. I was dying to take a picture on my phone, and I couldn't because you know all the NDAs and everything it was super tight security. But to this day, if there was one thing I could have done is I wish I'd taken a picture. Um, but I did, I did sit in it and um, it was comfy. You know, I remember thinking the back was very stiff, you know, very straight up because you have to look heroic in the captain's chair. So no slouching. Right. What, what, what did you think about the bridge that they built for the new enterprise? It's, it's um, I thought it was different cool. from. Yeah, well, yeah. the guy who designed that, and his name's escaping me right now, but the guy who designed that also designed most of Revenge of the Sith, and um, which I, I really, I, I like that movie a lot, and I like the design of it. And he had done um, some of the, the stuff for Attack of the Clones as well. And um, so he designed the Enterprise. I mean, the production designer gets all the credit and everything, and I'm sure he had a lot to do with it. But the guy who actually sketched it up, um, who I wish I, I remembered his name, but he actually, he came off the Star Wars so he was, he was like creme de la creme. And uh, I thought it was really cool. Um, it was a lot of lights. It was a lot of blinking, but it didn't look like that in real life. That, a lot of that gets brought in in the movie, you know, with all the flashing lights and the lens flare and all that. The set actually a little bit, was a little bit more um, toned down. I can't remember. Did it have the red bar, you know, that was in the original oh. show? 
And, you know, I haven't I haven't seen that movie in a while. I don't remember if, if it had that I remember way. it was in the design sketch, and I thought that was very cool. And I don't think it was on the bridge. I could be wrong. But I remember thinking, oh, where's the red bar? Because that was in one of the design sketches. I definitely remember that. I, I'm I'm gonna go. I don't recall seeing that that red bar around. At, but Eric Charles, you guys remember seeing if the remembering the red ring around the the bridge like it was on the original show? I don't remember. I don't I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. Now I'm gonna have to One go back and watch it. I find interesting is the the, the tricorder that I redesigned for that. Um, I happen to have the art of, um, which one was it? I think I had Art of Attack of the Clones on, on my desk. And if you look, if you go through it somewhere, find the picture of the the tricorder, knowing what I'm about to tell you, you'll totally see it. It's Jango Fett's helmet. I was looking for oh. a new design, and it's totally. And I, I just swiped Jango Fett's helmet and put that and made that the design for the new tricorder for the Federation to use. <laughs> I don't think anybody's gonna... ever noticed that. But if you see, if you look at it now and you know that going in, you'll absolutely see it, no doubt. Because I know I'm it's in the art of Star Trek book and stuff, and but it's definitely there. But nobody picked up on it. And the reason I remember that was because that was the day that I met Leonard Nimoy. And my oh boss, wow! Well, oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is that he's a lot like Spock, and. He's, what I mean by that is he was not the most emotional person. So he was very, like, um, not rigid, but, you know, it, it, it was hard to get a sense of him when I was talking to him. So that just made me more nervous. And my boss had just straight up lied to him because he, I love Star Trek. I've seen all of them, of all the original shows, but it wasn't why I became an artist. And my boss told me, told him that is why I became an artist. So he walks up to me and goes, I understand that, you know, Star Trek is the reason that you became an artist. Can you tell me about that? And I'm surrounded by books of Star Wars all around me, right? <laughs> and Halo <laughs> and all this other stuff that I'm looking at because I looked at Halo a lot, too. And so I just, I, I just totally lied. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. It, it, it you know, it, it was the reason I became an artist and this and that. Wasn't Empire Strikes Back was the reason I became an artist, but mm-hmm. um, you know he, he had to lie. So that made me very nervous meeting with him. And then I got even more nervous. And I told him that my mom had a crush on him. And have you ever had those moments in your life that you could just take back a couple words? That meeting might have gone better. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just a couple words, and, and that meeting yep. would have gone looked so much better. Um, so, wow. but he was he was he was very he was very cordial. I would say that was the word. He was very cordial. And he, I, I, he, he, um, he asked me a lot of questions that I just felt like I was basically lying to him the entire time. I felt really bad about that. Wow. That's, 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 a, that's not, not many people can say they lied to Leonard Nimoy. Well, it's like, you know, I'm a fan, but it's like you can be a fan of something. But then maybe that's not the thing that like you know made you. It's like like I'm a big music lover. I love David Bowie, but he's not like the guy that like I go to for like all my music. You know what I'm saying? So right. like, Prince is the guy who who probably inspired me the most musically. So, but if you meet David Bowie, then you're like, of course, if he was still alive, you'd be like, of course, you were my big, you know, my biggest influence. You know? So. <laughs> wow. Well, um, let's see. We we do have a caller on the line. Let me see if uh, let me see if this thing will cooperate. There we go. Hey, good evening. Thank you for calling Trek Talk. And what's your name and where are you calling us from tonight? 
Hi, so, can you hear hello? me? Hello? Yeah, what's going on? Hi. Hi, it's me, David, from Portland. I'm calling in from the hey. wall. Hey, from the David. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, David, do you, have a, do you have a question for Doug about Star Trek 2009? Um, I think he already answered it when I was uh, I was going to ask him about if he had designed any of the non-weapons, but he mentioned the tricorders. I guess that's it, yeah. Yeah, the tricorders? <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. Boba Fett helmet? Jango Fett. Yeah, Jango Fett. But, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to I'm go back. Kinda, we, designed, I, we designed all kinds of stuff. Some of it didn't make it into the movie, but we definitely designed a lot of stuff that wasn't weapons. Anything Actually, that I have one question. Some medical devices I would have had to design. Um, I definitely remember designing all the money that we just then, as I told earlier, that we cut. Um, and, oh, and the medals. I got to design the, uh, the the award that he get that Kirk gets for the Kobayashi Maru. That okay. was a big deal to me. I totally forgot about that. Actually, just yeah, yeah. Now. So yeah, I got to design that um, special. Uh, what was it? Commendation for original thinking. Um, so I got to design the combination for original thinking, which I thought was super exciting. And my boss was just like, what, what's so exciting about this? I'm like, you have to understand, in Wrath of Khan, you this and this and this. And that's right. Like, oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah I remember that right. that was very cool. And I actually made it the, 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 the Star Trek symbol because I went through all these different symbols. And I'm like, no, it should be like the definitive symbol. If this is like the award that he got that gets referenced in Khan, I, just, I went back to the original symbol for that. Wow. You know, the original, whatever you call that shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Doug, but before, we, before we move on, I just want, what happens to all the stuff that you design that, <laughs> the, that, that they don't use? Does it, do they throw it all in the garbage, or where no, does it go? No, it's used for other <laughs> movies. In fact, not to, not to change subjects, but a perfect example of this is on Thor. So on Thor, I designed all the Asgardian weapons. Asgardian is, like, where Thor's from, and, all that stuff. So I designed all these weapons for it. And there was a lot of, I created these gold swords and it was based on Flash Gordon from 1980, 1980, I think. They had gold oh, swords. Oh, my favorite, so I thought, oh, cool. favorite movie. <laughs> really? So I thought that would be <laughs> I cool love to it. put into Thor, right? And then they actually only used a few of them in a few shots. But then years later, I'm married. I go out with my wife. We go see Thor 2. I saw more of my props in Thor 2, which I never worked on, than in any other movie I've ever seen. Oh, interesting. And, they, and I got no screen credit or anything, but that doesn't really mean it's a movie. But there was all these props that I designed in the second movie that I never even worked on. I, I just They just carried over from the first movie. And so, like, I remember his mother has this gold sword and stuff. And that was designed for the first movie that just didn't get used. And so they brought it back for her for the second film. So wow, they don't keep so, all that stuff. That is cool. So, um, Eric, I've taken up enough of Doug's time, so I know you have some questions to ask him as well. Well, it's very interesting what you were just saying about all of your stuff that, you know, wasn't used in the first movie kind of getting carried over to the second one. I mean, how did that feel to you? Was that okay? Or Yeah, no, it was very cool. It was just, it was weird. I had that happen with, I think Loki, I'm not positive, but I think Loki's dagger in Avengers and he pulls out of his back or something. I think I designed that for the first one, too. Because I remember thinking, looking at that, going, oh, that's familiar. Um, but I'm not sure about that one. But Thor 2, I'm absolutely sure of. Like, I'm looking at But no, it didn't bother me. It was, it was very cool. I was like, I, I, it would have been, you know. 
if I if I if I'd known about it in advance, but they never tell you. I mean, I remember Tim Burton um, had a whole exhibit until my artwork was in this exhibit, and it went to all these huge, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, museums like LACMA and the Met and all these places. And the only reason I found out my stuff was at any of these places was that somebody in Starbucks told me. Oh, <laughs> like, well, oh wow. Starbucks was like, hey, you know, I just saw some of your stuff at LACMA, which is a famous art museum yeah, in L.A. Sure, sure. And uh, I'm like, really? And they're like, oh, yeah, there's this whole Tim Burton exhibit. So, you know. But when I went down there, I was like, I don't want to pay for a ticket. I told them, like, my stuff is in there. Here's my ID. You can look on the plaques. And they did. They gave me a free ticket. So that was the only thing I got. That was my perk. I got a free ticket to go look at my own work. Wow. Wow. Well, I now I was going to ask you about some other stuff, but I am a gigantic um, Tim Burton fan. So now I want to know what was in this exhibit that was yours. Um, I designed. Um, well, I designed uh, all the props, all, uh, all the weapons, everything basically for Planet of the Apes. So there was some hey, stuff yeah. in there. I can't remember what. There was. Yeah, sure. I remember that there was like a chill child doll in there that I created, or probably some of the silverware that I created. Um, so yeah. Well, that's super cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, of course, you know, we're a Star Trek podcast, so I started by looking up your, um, you know, your memory alpha page and seeing what was on there. And then I went down this big rabbit hole, and I had so much fun because you worked on so much cool stuff that uh, I'm interested in. Um, uh, I will say that uh, I want to talk about forbidden science here in a little bit, but uh, one of the things that I'm very interested in is just – you know, what's the most interesting aspect of the type of stuff that you do? You're an artist. Um, I don't know if you work on a, in like a digital medium or if you work, you know, analog, if you use colored pencils or, or what you do. But like in terms of your process and really just getting to produce cool stuff for movies, what's your favorite part? What satisfies you? Well, I mean, I, 90% of my work is storyboards. We've been talking mostly about my prop design work, which I stopped doing because I hated all the math in it. You'd be amazed how much math is involved in something like that. You have to figure out the scaling and stuff. I hate all that. So I, I pretty much, you know, once my storyboard career kind of kicked off really well, like 12 years ago, I kind of I moved away from prop illustration and just stuck with storyboards, which I still do today. I'm working with McCheese right now on a film. And... Um, which he's a director. He did Charlie's Angels. And um, so that, that's mostly what I do. As, for my, as far as my process goes, I was a traditional artist up until, I guess, about eight years ago when I did Maze Runner. On um, Maze Runner, they brought in a guy just for the last couple of weeks to help me out, and he was doing all digital. And so I decided to, to get a tablet in and try it out and try to see what he's doing. And I never went back, and I haven't used pencil and paper now in eight years since Maze Runner. Um, so I do everything on Photoshop and I just draw it just like I would with markers and pencils. It's the exact same technique. I throw down one layer for the line work, for roughing it out, second line, second layers for rendering it up, third layers for gray tone, and then I'm done. Mm-hmm. So I guess you're drawing upon uh, probably myriad science fiction references that are inside your brain from, you know, wherever in your life. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, most films I work on, and this, this is not, I don't mean it in an ego sense. It's just I generally know more about sci-fi than most of the directors I work with, just because that's my whole world. So that's pretty much all I've done. I mean, yeah, I've done Pet Cemetery and I've done some of these horror movies like Friday the 13th and stuff, but 
generally speaking, my, my world is sci-fi. So that's just, that's, I don't really have to draw on it anymore. It's just sort of like, you know, yeah, it's like if you grow up in church, you just know the prayers, you know, you don't, you don't have to think about them anymore, you know. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, the prop illustration and sort of these other things, but um, you've done some writing, of course. Um, so do you want to tell us just a little bit about, I may be, I'm not sure, I may be the only one of the hosts here who's seen a little bit of Forbidden Science. you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, Forbidden Science originally started as a fun little sexy sci-fi show, and it was originally really called Kinky Science, and I actually got the deal with Cinemax HBO, Cinemax is owned by HBO, um, while I was on the Paramount lot. So I remember getting the call that, hey, we're gonna, they, they greenlit your show, and I'm standing like 10 feet from the bridge of the Enterprise. And I remember thinking, like, wow, this is like <laughs> one of those moments, you know? And, uh, but then as soon as I hung up, I then realized, oh, wait, I have to go home and now write 13 episodes or 12 or more episodes because they just they, they, they greenlit the whole show for the season, and I only had one script done. Um, the problem with Forbidden Science was that they added a lot more TNA than I had originally envisioned. I wanted it to be a sexy show. It was originally called Kinky Science. Um, I changed the name once they actually added more TNA than I originally wanted. Um, and that's what killed the show um, because you had people that were coming for the sci-fi and then it was just too much TNA for them. And then you had the people coming for the TNA who were like, this is way too much talking in science fiction. So that, that killed the show after a year. But I will say that it was the most fun I ever had in my whole life as far as like working and career-wise stuff so that's yeah, really it was a great cool. experience yeah that's really cool to hear that you had so much fun on it i mean i i will say that i what you're kind of uh the way you just described it is very much the way i took it in and yeah. i'm glad to hear um oh yeah no i'm that, glad to hear you say that yeah i had nothing to do with that like those are those are decisions that I made high by higher up and one of the main reasons that i went into novel writing was that then I make the decisions. Yes, I have editors and stuff who, who help me and make sure that, you know, everything doesn't suck. But generally speaking, you know, it's all, it's all my decisions. And um, writings for screenplays had a big impact on that. Because I also sold an option to a whole bunch of other scripts that people haven't seen. Because just because your script gets sold does not mean that it's going to get made. And yeah. even if it does get made, it may not be the version that you came up with. So I really moved away from all of that. And while I still work in the film industry every day as an artist, as far as writing goes, I do that um, my own way. So that, that's why I moved into novel writing. In this. Well, that was going to be my last question was kind of what is your latest creative outlet? Because it does seem like you've, you've definitely obviously made a career out of certain things and kind of dabbled in other things. Like what what's your jam these days? Well, I mean, I'm a big fan. Even back going back years when I was working on Forbidden Science, I've always been interested in flipping tropes. So with my, my new book, it's called The Ship. Um, the idea is that the first half feels, it, it, it has all the tropes that you've seen. There's a crashed UFO. There's a town where everybody's missing. There's an alien supposed conspiracy and all this. But then in the second half, I completely flip it and I give it a more scientific believable for me at least believable explanation as to what the gray aliens are why is there a conspiracy all that stuff why would ufos be popping out of the sky on our planet and not showing up on radar all the answers that i could think of all the questions that i could think of 
I, I did on that. And then the one I'm working on now, The Ship Returns, I know, really original titles. Um, <laughs> in, in the second one, I'm actually dealing with what is, what is the deal with Area 51? Because if they had all this advanced technology back in the day in the 50s from the Roswell crash, well, then why don't we have flying cars in this and that? And I, I, and so I answer that, and that's the question I wanted to answer with the second book. So I'm very much about like taking a lot of the tropes that I grew up with in Alien or X Files or The Thing, and then giving it a new modern twist and trying to give it an explanation that, at least for me personally, makes a lot more sense. Well, and it sounds like you're approaching it from a very sort of Star Trekky perspective, where you're asking lots of questions and you know providing plausible explanations. And I would guess that you leave some things dangling. You probably don't sew everything up, right? Yeah, I mean, I leave a couple things dangling. I would answer ninety percent though, because I really get annoyed by watching a movie or reading a book and <laughs> all this time, like Prometheus. Yeah. You invest oh, all this time, and then they ask all these big <laughs> questions, and they don't answer any of them. So I absolutely answer at least 95% of the questions. There's a couple things I didn't answer, and that was just so I had something for the second book. Right. But, no, I do answer most of the questions because there's nothing in the world more annoying to me than watching something or, or reading something for hours and then afterwards being like, oh, well, we had no answer to all those great questions. <laughs> like that, you know, you ever watch a movie or read a book and you feel like, hey, that was really entertaining, and then you get to the end and you're like, Oh, no. And then you're well, like, did they happen. even have an ending in mind? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that yeah. Happened We've reviewed a couple Burton. of those. That happened yeah. in Planet of the Apes. That ending the Planet of the Apes, the Tim Burton one, that changed so many times. In fact, to the point that when I went to the premiere, nobody knew what the ending was going to be. Mm. Wow. And uh, it kind of shows. That's kind of interesting, huh? If you, if you see the ending, you're like, wait, where'd that come from? Yeah, that's how everybody felt. Wait, where'd that come from? <laughs> Because they were trying to top the original ending, which you really can't do. And that yeah. was an ending that, you know, was organic. If you, you know, when you see the statue at the end of the original yeah. Planet of the Apes, it was organic. It wasn't as organic uh, with the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. Yeah, too much precedent, maybe. Interesting. Well, um, awesome. Thank you, Doug. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Charles have a crack at you real quick here uh, and see. Hopefully, I've left some things for him to chat about. Charles, what do you say? <laughs> Uh, not too much, but I was already, I was, I, you mentioned the book, so I was going to go look on Amazon, and you made me smile on that one. It's, oh, a new author. He's already got an audio release of the book. <laughs> I, I do. In fact, the audio, audio book just book. came out last month. I tried to get it out before Comic-Con. That was my goal. i I love audio books. I do a lot of walking, and I purchase <laughs> audio books like crazy. Always looking for a good audio book when I get walking. So that's going to be on my list of things to listen to. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I was shocked how many people asked for an audio book when I released the book. Because I released the book uh, during the summer. And then um, I had, uh, I, was, I was just amazed how many people were like, well, I'm buying your book, but we really, I, I, I buy the audio book if you guys want I really don't have time to, listen, to read all this thing. And yeah, like the audio book's been actually doing pretty well from what I understand. It's only been out for, I think, three weeks now, four weeks, something like that. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I wanted to get it out before Comic-Con. To give you an idea for audio books, I go out walking outside 35 minutes, before going to work, and 15 minutes to an hour on the week on each day on the weekend or when I'm on vacation. 
I do a lot of walking, so I get a lot of time for audiobooks. <laughs> so thank you for doing for putting that out. But that's helpful to us that we want that kind of thing. Now well, one thing glad, Jim glad bring up. One thing that Jim didn't bring up, but I need to bring in some stunt tricks into Trek Talking tonight. And what were some of the influences of Planet of the Apes? Did you find out when he and Leslie talk? They talk, they always they always are talking about something in the past and oh, there's a there's their Planet of the Apes reference for the week. That's right, we do. <laughs> Yep, Sorry, I, I didn't, I didn't understand the question. What was the question? <laughs> the references. What did you did you try to go? Oh, what did I look at? Did you, what did I look at? Concept? Concept? I looked at Conan the Barbarian. The I remember exactly what I did. I looked at Conan the Barbarian. Ron Cobb's designs for the John Milius movie Conan the Barbarian. Oh, yeah. Because in um, that movie, and there's no sequel, there's no remake. Those things do not exist. Just like the fourth Indiana Jones, some things just don't exist. Um, but if you look at John Milius' Conan the Barbarian, um, Ron Cobb, who did designs for that, who also actually worked on Alien, um, had to make a fictional world that felt historical. And I remember that's how I got that job. That was my first big job. I mean, it was my second film, but it was my first big one. And the way I got the job was I drew up one sketch, and Tim Burton approved that sketch, and that's how I got in. And that sketch was a helmet made out of bones around a gorilla's head. And that helmet was based on, there's a scene in the original Conan the Barbarian where Conan escapes slavery and falls into this well or whatever. And there's this giant knight and Charity's got this big helmet. And I totally just swiped that helmet and just made it out of bone (laughs) instead of of whatever it was made out of and totally swiped it. And I, I made, I made it, I made this kind of like armored, bone helmet for a gorilla and I, I turned that in and I didn't turn in any portfolio. I didn't do any of that stuff. I had one picture. I came into this meeting because I knew one of the guys on the crew and I just I just showed it to the right people and that one drawing got me on the Planet of the Apes. And it certainly helped launch my career. I would say Fanda Helsing really is the one that launched my career. But Planet of the Apes certainly helped launch it. I learned a lot on that show. I was very young at the time. Oh sounds fabulous. Well, my guess is it's in your release in your book for for uh, Comic Con LA. If you get a chance to go, get a chance and go upstairs, the second floor up the fleet, and say hey to them. I'm actually one of the members of the fleet. I don't get to go to the comic to show this year, but that's part of our fleet upstairs. Oh yeah. Star Trek exhibit. Yeah, my, my wife and I are going tomorrow. I, I'm, I'm really, you know, we got all the banners and everything. And I did Comic-Con once before for Forbidden Science, but HBO went all out. I mean, they gave us cloning chambers, and there was all these people, and they were doing it all. I just had to show up. This time I actually had to create all this, this booth myself, me and my wife. So it's a little terrifying. <laughs> a little bit. Oh, it'll be, it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be but fine. But if you have if you're up there and you'll see any banners of some of the ships in the fleet, you see the Windrunner that I'm on. Oh, yeah? Cool. Yep. But the, the fleet, which is a group of ships, is hosted in, in uh, Southern California. Yeah, it's too Great bad you aren't going to be able to make it there, though, Charles, because you could, you could go up and, and 
meet Doug in person for us if you were going to be there. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, I'm actually bringing some of my storyboard stuff, too, up there. Just because my wife was like, you know, I'm a nobody writer, so you gotta you gotta pimp out what you can. So I'm bringing storyboards from Men in Black and I don't know Pet Cemetery and I don't know some other stuff. So if there's any uh, up and coming artists who want to see what storyboards look like, they're welcome to come by as well. Very cool. That is awesome. So uh, Doug, I know you brought yeah. up Men in Black. That's one of, my daughter loves uh, Men in Black. So uh, could you talk a little bit about what you, what kind of work you did on Men in Black? Well, I did really in Men quick? in Black International. Um, International. And, uh, yeah, and, and I, I, I storyboarded the whole movie. I mean, I storyboarded, yeah, pretty much the whole movie. Um, and near the end, you had to bring in a couple other guys um, just because we were running behind. Um, but that was for, uh, uh, who was that for? F. Gary Gray, who had done... Um, Straight Out of Compton, which I thought was a really good film, and uh, so that was that was cool. I actually my first part of that job was to create. There's two kinds of storyboards. There's presentation boards, those are the pretty stuff, and then there's the shooting boards. Those are the ones that are actually used for cast and crew, and you know to make the movie. Um, but when they were trying to get Chris Hemsworth on, um, I created some first presentation boards so that they could so that F. Gary Gray could take that into a meeting along with other stuff and say, hey, this is my vision for the movie. And then once they secured him, um, then I knew kind of like, okay, well, that's what my lead actor looks like. Um, and so I would draw him in the storyboards for the, for the rest of the shooting boards. And then for shooting boards on a movie, like, like even now today, I do four, four panels an hour. So I do about 40 drawings a day, and that's full gray-toned finished drawings. Um, so, you know, I've got, I'm pretty fast. And uh, so on something like, um, which were Men in Black, we probably did over a thousand drawings on Men in Black versus storyboards. Easy. Wow. Because every so visual effect shot, you have to draw it all up. Because you have to know. Imagine like I would imagine everybody in your in your thing. So imagine um, Kirk is, is 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 fighting an alien on a war on an alien planet. Well. They have to know what that alien planet looks like, where Kirk is in relationship to it, where the ship is to it, if, if, the, if the Enterprise is above, where the alien is. You have to figure out all, all that in advance because you have to shoot those in different elements. So first you shoot Kirk, then your visual effects people create the alien. The art department has to know what part of the, the alien world they actually have to build. They have to build anything that his feet will be touching, obviously. Um, so anything like that. So the storyboard is basically just a comic book for the crew, and it goes to all the department heads, and it basically maps out what this movie's going to look like. And they might make minor tweaks here and there. They don't usually make very big changes. Are you storyboarding wow. while they're still, or while they're starting to actually go further on that? Like, a, or, or are all the storyboards kind of complete by the time they sort of move on to the next phase of movie making? <laughs> like I said before with the uh, production art, if you're still storyboarding, in fact, it's worse if you're storyboarding. If you're storyboarding while they're shooting, you're in, they're in trouble. Well, I see um, shooting. I have had a few projects where, like I remember on Maze Runner, I storyboarded for the first couple days of them shooting. But the problem is then the director has no time to go over storyboards. Yeah, so sure. you might meet them during lunch. And the problem is I hate being on set because lunch can be 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, because their mm-hmm. hours are all wacky. Mm-hmm. So, I avoid being on set at all costs. Um, so my goal is to get those storyboards done 
before the first day of shooting. Like I just did a movie called The Uglies for McGee, and I did, I had the storyboards finished on Friday, and they started shooting on Monday. And um, they brought me back just right now because I'm just doing some pickup shots, but that's just like little inserts. So like I'm spending a couple of days just drawing hands and feet right now, basically. It's like a hand touches this or a foot steps on that, that kind of a thing. Right? Those are just insert shots. Um, mm-hmm. Inserts means just like a little close up. Sure. Um, so yeah, so yeah, but that's that's pretty much what I do. I do it every day, and you know I'm, I'm always working on something. There's a few films I've got coming out right now. I did a in fact, I did a movie right before COVID. It's just now been announced. Um, it was for the Foo Fighters, actually. The Foo Fighters got a horror movie coming out that I actually storyboarded, and I did that before, right, right before COVID hit. So, so sometimes so I'll forget kind of, about a movie, and then it'll, it'll pop up years later. I have one quick question for you before wow. we let you go. I, I sure. We went over a little bit over the half an hour, but I just have one, one more question. From one fan to another, um, working in the industry as you do, do you still go to movies and enjoy watching them like we do? Or do you sit there and you see all the technical aspects of the movie and look at a movie differently since you were? Uh, I try not to. I really, I really try to turn off my brain and just enjoy the movie. Um, Sometimes I will. I remember seeing Eternals and thinking, okay, you know, and I can look at it as a writer and be like, eh, there's some issues there. But generally speaking, I think I would have had those issues even though I, even if I wasn't working in the film industry. But generally, no, I, I, I can turn my brain off and just either enjoy a movie or not enjoy it. Um, you know, which I thought Dune was incredible, like, as far as, like, the new movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I read that book I have a, a quick question. Then, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Dave. Uh, yeah, um, you were talking about all these movies things that you uh, did storyboards for, and I was just curious. Did they ever uh, put you in, like, in the background of those movies? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, if they did, I don't, okay. no, I don't think so. No, 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 no background stuff. But you have to I, I, I'm usually right? gone before they start filming. <laughs> That's too bad. I'm, well, not, Doug, I'm not very I'm, photogenic. I don't, I don't really think anybody wants me in the background. I, nobody, nobody's <laughs> ever said, you know what we need? We need Doug Brody in the back of this scene. Like, that's never happened. <laughs> but you never know. I might get my moment to shine at some point. I could be a waiter in a movie someday. You never know. Oh, I hope so, man. I hope so. <laughs> Live in the dream. Yeah, you, Live in the you, dream. You could be in a bar. You could be in a Star Trek bar. I could right? be in a Star Trek bar with no you money. You could be an alien. <laughs> With no money, right? With no money. <laughs> that was a whole thing too. Going circling back to that, it was, that was like a whole thing that you know. When they cut the money, they there, there's a domino effect to that because they 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 you had to rewrite the scene too. <laughs> you know, so well, it's they, not just that, like they just I, cut the props. Like of all the things you've talked about, a lot of really really interesting stuff tonight. That is the one that just puts me in awe the most. That like the folks who were shooting the movie didn't understand that sort of fundamental concept and that the, the prop illustrator dude was the one who brought it up to him and was like, Hey, listen, you're messing this up. And they're like, oh, well, I, didn't really say that. I mean, they just, no, no, no. But I, you put it much more eloquently than I just did. But, well, actually, but, I, was but, kinda, yeah. I, I mean, I, I really wasn't. I was raising my hand like a 12-year-old in class. You uh, I mean, like, girl, you can tell me picture it, just like this whole room of suits, and I'm just like the artist in flip-flops. I'm just like raising my hand going, excuse me, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's to J.J.'s credit that he decided, oh, okay, then we'll, we'll take that out, you know? Yeah. Um, J.J. No, was absolutely. very much a Star Wars guy. 
and um, you can see that in that movie. I mean, definitely. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think he did a really good job, and I think that the idea of, of bringing in a new team that maybe wasn't as familiar with Star Trek, I think helped that movie. Um, because, it, you know, while I wasn't a big fan of the sequels that came after it, I do think that the 2009 Star Trek rebooted fans' interest. And when I say fans, I don't mean like you guys and, and me. I mean like just the general audience. Like somebody like my wife would enjoy that movie, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I do think that it, it did a lot of good. I, I think that the sequels didn't work out quite as well as I hoped they would. I remember his, he lost the ship in, in the third movie. I'm like, really? Like Shatner never would have let that happen. But, uh, you know, seriously, I mean, he didn't sacrifice the ship until the third movie. He's like 60 years old at that point, and that was a, that was a just, just strategic decision. You know, yeah. this new Kirk, you know, he loses the ship in the third movie. He's like 22. Yeah. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, Shatner never would let that happen. It's true. <laughs> He'd be like, get those nanites, nanobite things off my ship, you know? Yeah. yeah, I'm a big Shatner fan. Wow. Well, Doug, I got to say, we've had a really great time chatting with you, and I apologize. We went over the half no, hour no just a little Thank bit. Thank you so much for having me. But we've really enjoyed talking oh, with you, oh, and oh. Uh, we'd love to have you back again in the future to share some more stories with us if you'd like to come back and chat with us. Um, cool. Yeah, well, next summer I'll have another book out, so why don't I give you guys a call? Good timing. <laughs> that right, would I'm be sorry. perfect. And uh, thank you so much, Doug, for hanging out and talking with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If there's anybody out there who wants to, you know, support a new uh, author, you know, check out the ship. So thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Doug. Have a good night. Bye-bye. All right. You too. Bye. All right, guys. We're going to talk about Star Trek Discovery Episode 2 Anomaly. We've got a convention calendar to go over, and we have got two weeks full of birthdays so we still got a lot to cram into the show so quick run to the bathroom run to the microwave get your chicken wings out don't go away we'll be right back after we hear this very quick message this is chris from trek talking and beyond here to invite you to join us for the best science fiction themed podcast on the internet our elite team of trek experts are here to discuss star trek and other sci-fi related content and we want to hear from you dial 646-668-2433 on Thursday nights from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. on East Coast time, hailing frequencies are always open and will get you on the air to share your opinions. We have faith. You will call. And we're back. And we're going we're gonna to move along a little bit here. And we're going to dive right into our fan shout-outs. Eric, who you got on your list for this week? Oh, we got some good ones this week. We are saying hello and thank you so much for listening to us to Lorenza Bollinger from Ostend, Belgium. That's right, Belgium. We don't get a lot of letters from Belgium, but thank you very much. Toshiko Kadir in Singapore. We're saying hello to you and thank you for interacting with us on our Facebook page. Thank you so much, Toshiko. We're also saying hello and sending out a big kapla to Maratita Valderes Pineda. She says, hello, I am from southern Chile, Rahul, uh, sorry, Rahul Osorno, and I'm sorry if I massacred that, but I tried my best. Thank you, Martina, for listening to us. Uh, Natapon Wakanga from Thailand sends a little Thai flag and a little live long and prosper emoji. Thank you very much for listening to us. And the final one on my list is Yosef Toms from Librec in the Czech 
Republic. We've got a few Czech Republic listeners. Thank you, Yosef, for listening to us. Charles, who is on your list this week? Well, I got top fan Evelyn Chu from the Philippines. I have friends that uh, are from the the Philippines. Love the food. Top fan Bill Bogdan from Clear Clear Lake, Oaks, California. Jonathan Miller from Winston, Oklahoma. Jonathan Hinternet from Kentucky. Oh, another another Kentucky. We're getting a roll with Kentucky this week. Yeah, Shannon's Michael in Kentucky. Baker from Michael Baker. Uh oh, gotta watch out for this <laughs> one. He's in Galway. Uh, and if you're not a Hoovian fan, you don't quite get the reference on that one. But uh we might have a time lord. Oh my gosh, if they're from there, I'm list. so I'm so sorry about your home world. <laughs> Yeah, and so I, did, I never heard of that. I didn't know where that is that in the United States or where 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 is that? <laughs> it's in a galaxy far uh, far away, Jim. Okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> it's All where right. Doctor Who is from. It's oh, the time we have a doctor. planet. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so Michelle it's Baker is from the Time Lord home planet. Yep. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, see, they listen to us all over the oh, place. <laughs> they do. Okay, yeah. well, let's see if Jim got anybody in New York. So I want to say uh, hello and thank you to Amy March from Massachusetts, USA. I was just down there for Thanksgiving at my brother's place. So thanks for listening, Amy. We'd also like to say hello, thank you, and complot to Joe Warner from New York. Don't know where from New York, but he's from New York. So represent, Joel. I, I'm there with you. Um, we'd also like to say thank you to Joe DeVazio from Albany, Oregon. <clears throat> I got excited because I thought it was Albany, New York, but then he threw in the Oregon. So um, I probably should have given that one to Eric. <laughs> 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 and we'd also like to say thank you to Betty Cameron from Australia. Good day, mate. And last but not least, Andrew Black from London, Ontario, Canada. Thanks for listening, guys. If you'd like to hear yourself mentioned in a fan shout-out, head over to our Facebook page, Trek Talk and Beyond. You'll see the Live Long and Prosper pinned right to the top of the page. Just give us a hello. Tell us where you're listening from. If you see a heart next to your name, that means yours truly, Uncle Jim, has chosen you, and you'll be getting mentioned in a future fan shout-out. And with that, it's time for our Star Trek birthday. That was not a Klingon song. Now, we have quite a few birthdays to go through because this covers two weeks, guys. So uh, bear with us because I think the birthdays are important and I... I enjoy paying remembrances to those who are no longer with us and those people who help add to our enjoyment of Star Trek. So I didn't want to cut anybody out. So just bear with us. We have got quite a few. And we always start off with those members of our Star Trek family who are no longer with us. And for that, we turn to Eric. Yeah, our first remembrance, Jim, this week goes out to a fantastic costume designer from TOS era. Uh, William Ware Thies would have had a birthday this week. 
uh, and he his contributions to the Star Trek franchise are numerous throughout uh, the TOS uh, era. So happy birthday to William. Uh, we do miss you. Um, we're also saying happy birthday and sending our remembrances out to Nathan Young, who played Genghis Khan in the classical TOS episode, The Savage Curtain. I uh, got to dress up in a lot of furs for that one. So happy birthday to Nathan. Uh, happy birthday also to Malachi Throne. Uh, Malachi got to play two different uh, characters uh, throughout the Star Trek franchise, and two of them are, are they're both really recognizable. Commodore Mendez from TOS's episode The Menagerie, uh, of course, the remembering of the cage. Uh, but then he was also called back to play Pardek uh, in TNG's oh, yeah. episode Unification. So just like one of those episodes that is, of course, is iconic and then had a part two and then was later finished with a part three uh, in Discovery years later. So just super cool uh, roles that Malachi got to play. Uh, would have had a birthday this week. We're also saying happy birthday to Yvonne Suhor, who played Udana in Voyager's episode Prime Factors, a great episode. Uh, Tiny, or excuse me, Tine uh, Ron uh, played a couple of different uh, characters, played Mahiradu in DS9's uh, episode, in six different, actually, DS9 episodes, and Adrin in Voyager's episodes Message in a Bottle and Hunters. So many, many different roles uh, played by uh, Tine Roll. Um, Michael Whitney played Tyree in TOS's episode, A Private Little War, one of those ones that I think is just a great philosophical conundrum. I love that episode so much. Michael Whitney, thank you for playing that great character. Uh, We're also saying happy birthday to Rhodey Kogan, who played one of the three witches, the first witch, in TOS's classic episode, Cat's Paw, the one and only holiday-themed episode, uh, and we just celebrated the third witch's birthday back in June. So uh, happy birthday to Rhodey Kogan. We're saying happy birthday to Robert Easton, who played the Klingon judge in Star Trek VI, the man who got to swing the awesome clawed gavel and make sparks, uh, which has now been uh, imitated in a couple of other iterations of Star Trek. So uh, Robert Easton, happy birthday to you. We're also saying a happy birthday to Karen Montgomery, who played Mistress Beata in TNG's episode Angel One, a, uh, an episode that I find slightly problematic, but a very interesting <laughs> portrayal uh, that Karen had in that, in that uh, episode. Uh, also, happy birthday to James Avery, General Kavah in Enterprise's episodes Affliction and Divergence. Uh, there are many awesome one-two punches in Enterprise, and those two episodes are two of them. Uh, James played an awesome character in both of those episodes, so uh, happy birthday to him. And then our last two remembrances are really uh, heavy hitters for the Star Trek world. Uh, we're, we're Jeffrey Hunter, uh, the very first captain of the Enterprise, uh, but wouldn't be seen until later, of course, uh, would have had a birthday this week. He, of course, played Captain Christopher Pike in the original uh, series episode, The Cage, and then later to be reprised in The Menagerie. The Menagerie was actually seen first by the public, uh, with The Cage being seen much, much later. Uh, so happy birthday to the original Captain Christopher Pike. There have been a couple of imitators, but nobody liked the original. Uh, happy birthday to you. 
And then the last and very large, I would say, and I would say that uh, this is like a Spock Leonard Nimoy level remembrance uh, this week. Uh, this week we are remembering Ricardo Montalban, who would have had a birthday, who of course plays the likely, probably most quintessential bad guy in all of Star Trek. Uh, of course, we're ca- talking about Khan Noonien Singh, the classic Superman from the 90s who lives through and onward to the 23rd century. And Jim, I think you have a little something to share with us, don't you? I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Buried alive. And there is nothing like that villain, and there is nothing like that scene. And, you know, I first became uh, familiar with Ricardo uh, also through Fantasy Island, his his quintessential yeah. role in that show. Um, so, man, what a great actor. What a great villain. Uh, and he's just like, to me, he's like, not only is he the quintessential villain, but he's sort of like the prototype for Chang. You know, this like very intelligent, very smart, just wants to outwit his opponent type villain in Star Trek. So love him very, yeah. very much. Uh, happy birthday, Ricardo Montalban. And just as a little side note, um, Leslie, the Leslie Hoffman, who uh, does stunt treks with me, actually worked with Ricardo Montalban on, uh, was it Air? Airplane, Charles? Air, yeah. No, no. He worked Airplane. on Fantasy Island. She worked on Fantasy Island with him. And that's where she met him. That's how he knew her and Naked Gun. Right, on Naked Gun. And she said that yeah. he was the nicest guy and that he actually remembered her and talked to her, which is unusual for actors of that caliber to talk to actors of Leslie's yeah. caliber. And uh, she just said he was just one of the nicest, most sincere, sweetest guys that she ever had the pleasure of meeting. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, Charles, you've got a rather lengthy list as well. In fact, I kind of broke my list into a couple different pieces. But uh, let's start off with Beverly Washburn, who played Lieutenant Galloway in TOS's The Deadly Years. Then we've got Barbara Anderson, who played Lenora Cardinian, and William Sargent, who played Dr. Layton, both from the episode Conscience of the King. And they seem to have a double birthday this week. Gary Harden played Samuel Clement in TNG's Time Arrow and Radius. Uh, also, pl- uh, and where, when the bell breaks. Also played Nervia in Voice Dimension. And not to top off with Daniel Clement. We got Daniel Davis who played Professor Mo- Professor Moriarty in TNG's Elementary, My Dear Data, and Chip in a Bottle. What a double pair to have come up. Biff Yeager played Lieutenant Commander 
Argyle and TNGs where no one had gone before, and Data Lore. Derek Graham played Quinn in Boys, Death Wish, and Hunter of Toss. And PS9 and DS9's Captive Pursuit. Alec Newman played Malik in Enterprises Borderlands, Cold Station 12, and, Ar- and Augment. Then my second part of my list. <clears throat> Let's start off with Dwight Schultz. Schwul- yeah. Dwight Schultz, who played Reginald Barclay. Woohoo! First Contact and Void. But before I knew him as Barkley, I had to know him as Matt, Howlin' Mad Murdoch. I was, in my years, I was a big classic AC. Me too. Me too, man. I love that series. Oh, that was a Tuesday night with Dad. After after MASH ended, that was a Tuesday night to sit there and see what they would do next. Such a good show. <laughs> Allison Pill played Dr. Agnes Durarte in Picard. Alexander Sindig played Dr. Julian Bezier in DS9. Good also one. well known for a lot of the stuff he does online and on uh, <coughs> Zoom Zoom now. Robert Beltran played Commander Dakota in Voice. Harry Farrell, who played Dax for the first six played one of the Daxes. Jadzia. The first six seasons of DS9. And Jim didn't realize about this one. I found this one today. Also, a big happy birthday to Nathan Cornoff. And people may say, well, who? wait a minute, who's this person? <laughs> oh, and Jim said, oh, hey, it's Nate from Vegas. That's right, he Nate from Vegas. Regular callers. And he had his birthday yesterday. Happy birthday, Nate. Happy birthday, Nate. And you know what? We got to do it. We're going to yep, send this one it. out. We're going to send this one out to Nate. Well, there's a punk in the alley and he's looking for a fight. There's an Arab on the corner buying everything inside. There's a mother in the ghetto with another mouth for feet. Seems that everywhere you look today, there's misery and greed. I guess you know the earth is going to crash into the sun. But that's no reason why we shouldn't have a little fun. So if you think it's scary, if it's more than you can take, just blow out the candles and have a piece of cake. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Nate. Oh. <laughs> Nate from Vegas. Okay, I Happy got birthday. all of that. Now, Jim, it's your turn to take a deep breath and try your list. Oh, many yeah, I've, I've, I, we, we have got some great birthdays, and that's why I didn't want to cut any out. So let's dive <sighs> right in. 
Let me make my screen a little bit bigger, though, because my old eyes can't focus on my phone. You can do it, Jim. You can do it. I, there we go. Okay. I did it. All. I so, did it for mine. Yep, I did it for mine, too. It's getting old just sucks, doesn't it? Oh, <laughs> uh, we're all there, buddy. Oh, well. Oh, well. So we're going to start off with, we want to say happy birthday to Patrick Cockchoon, who plays Rius on, DS, on Discovery. He actually got to be captain in episode one, if you guys remember. Yeah. And when Michael clear, Burnham. Let's be clear, you guys. Everybody says that Tilly was number one, but that is not necessarily true at that point. We don't know that. We can dig into that a little deeper if you want to call in and talk about it. But I yeah. always hold that Reese was always the next in command, and that was established in season one, actually. Look back. And, and, and he was, because when Burnham left the ship, he took command. He was in the sure. captain's chair telling Detmer what to do. So, yes. So he was he took command when she left the ship, which tells me he's number one. Well, now Saru is number one, but right. Saru wasn't right. around in that yeah, episode. Right. <laughs> right. But in episode one, prior to Saru, he took command. So happy birthday. Uh, this one we're sending out to uh, Eric. We'd like to say happy birthday to Odin Fair, who played Admiral Vance on Star Trek Discovery. And I want to say it was so great in episode one to see Vance's family there. Mm-hmm. If you remember, mm-hmm. yep. he hadn't seen his family in years because he was at Starfleet headquarters and they had no way to get there because of That's the right. burn and warp and dilithium. So in, in, in the first episode, he's there with his family to dedicate uh, space station Archer and his family's there with him, which I thought was a great little touch to throw his family in there. So happy birthday. Yeah. He was also in the mummy, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty cool. And he, he's he just was, been in so many great he's movies. He's been in so many great things. And I just love his portrayal of Admiral Vance. I mean, he is strong, but fair. Uh, and a man who is picking up the, the broken pieces of what has been, uh, you know, the bones of the Federation for the last 120 years. I just, I love his character so much in Discovery, yeah. quite honestly. He is. He's, he's pretty he plays, cool. We he also like the Admiral well. Yep. He does. He does. And he's not a dink like most Admirals we, we see, <laughs> which right. is pretty cool. He's not the bad he's guy. The <laughs> yep. And we'd also like to say happy birthday to Deep Roy, who plays Kiesner in the Kelvin Universe movies. He's Scotty's little bug-eye-faced buddy in the, in the Kelvin Universe. So happy birthday to Deep Roy. We'd also like to say happy birthday to Scarlett Palmers, who plays Naomi Wildman, subunit of Samantha and Voy. Uh, We'd like to say happy birthday to Menina Fatuno, who played the Orion Maris in the Enterprise episode Found. I just watched that last night, matter of fact. Uh, We'd like to say, and here we go. We have have the trifecta of birthdays today, guys, because we want to say happy birthday to Patricia McPherson, who played Mistress Ariel in TNG's Angel One. So what, what, what are the odds of that, having three double birthdays? Into one, I know. Into one. That's, yeah. I don't think that's ever happened. Pretty um, awesome. We, yeah, that is really cool. We'd also like to say happy birthday to Craig Huxley, who plays Peter Kirk in the TOS episode Operation Annihilate, and Tommy Starnes in one of the best Star Trek episodes ever, and the children shall leave. I think it's right up there with Spock's brain as far as dude, classic, dude, that, awesome, if you wanna, good if you viewing. Get me, 
if you want to get me angry, make me watch that episode over and over again. It. <laughs> like that is at the very bottom of my list. <laughs> and, and and guess what, guys? We're going for the hat trick now, <laughs> because because we want to say happy birthday to Rex Holman, who played Morgan Earp in TOS's episode Spectre of the Gun, which is awesome. one of my favorite episodes, and I, and I think one of the first Star Trek episodes that I can ever remember seeing. Um, but, but, if you've listened to the podcast, you know that Star Trek V, I have a soft spot for Star Trek V. And he happened to play John in Star Trek V. That's the bald guy that Cybok meets in the opening credits of the movie. And Rex Holman plays him. Oh. And why? Is that a big deal? Because the next birthday that we have to say is happy birthday to Lawrence Luckinbill, who played Cybok in Star Trek V. That's four birthdays from four different Star Treks in one single show. What are the odds of that? Come Pretty on. awesome. That does not happen very often. Not very often and that's at all. Just, just like, and, and, just, and for them to be like Jim's favorite, like that's just, that's awesome. That's just incredible. So, and now we're now we're going to move away. We don't well, have we don't well, have wait, any other. There there is so much more. We would like to say happy birthday to Denise Crosby who played Tasha R in season one of TNG, and of course Sela on uh, TNG later on. Happy birthday to Denise Crosby. I've met her at several conventions, and she is so so cool. If you get a chance to meet her, and guys yeah. guys, yeah. our phone number here is six four six. Six six eight two four three three, and you're saying, why are you telling us the phone number in the middle of the birthdays? Well, if you were listening to the beginning of the show when I was talking with Doug, I said we had a special birthday tonight. When I announced the birthday, the first caller is going to win an autographed picture. That's right now, guys. Right this second, call six four six 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 eight. Two four three three, and I will send you an autographed picture of Lieutenant Arium from the first season of Star Trek Discovery, played by Sarah Mitch, who we're wishing a very special happy birthday to tonight. Six four six 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 eight two four three three is the number, and I'm going to give you guys a chance to dial while we give you guys the next birthday. And the next birthday goes out to Scott McGinnis, who played. Mr. Adventure in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. And you're thinking to yourself, Uncle Jim, who the hell is Mr. Adventure? Well, I, I saw DeForest Kelly to Star Trek convention once, and he said, Star Trek is made up of a bunch of moments. Mr. Adventure is one of those moments. This, is, this I think, is Uhura's moment to shine in Star Trek Three. And if you guys don't remember who Mr. Adventure is, this is him. Roger, Old City Station at 2200 hours. All is well. Understood. All stations clear. You amaze me, Commander. Oh, how is that? A 20-year space veteran, yet you choose the worst duty station in town. I mean, look at this place. This is the hind end of space. Peace and quiet appeals to me, Lieutenant. Yeah, well, maybe that's okay for someone like you, whose career is winding down, but me... I need some challenge in my life, some adventure. 
maybe even just a surprise or two. Well, you know what they say, Lieutenant. Be careful what you wish for. You may get it. Good evening, Commander. Is everything ready? Step into my parlor, gentlemen. That's Admiral Kirk, my God. Very good for you, Lieutenant. But it's damn irregular. No destination orders, no encoded IDs. All true. Well, what are we going to do about it? I'm not going to do anything about it. You're going to sit in the closet. The closet? What, have you lost all your sense of reality? This isn't reality. This is fantasy. You wanted adventure houses. The old adrenaline going, huh? Good boy. Now get in the closet. Okay. Uh, Go uh, on. Go on. I'll just get in the closet. Okay. I'm glad you're on our side. Can you handle that? Uh... Oh, I'll have Mr. Adventure eating out of my hands, sir. And I'll see all of you at the rendezvous. Oh, and Admiral. All my hopes. So, do you guys remember Mr. Adventure? 100%. I love that yeah. scene from Star Trek 3. That's so funny. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. That's right. And and I forgot, guys, uh, we already have a caller. And That's we already right. have. I, I forgot because he called earlier. So, David is calling us from a, from a mall out in Oregon. So, congratulations, David. You won the autographed picture of uh, Lieutenant Arium from season one of Star Trek Discovery. So congratulations. Oh, uh, that's okay. Uh, I actually, I, I'll give it away to the first caller who ever called in. Okay, we can we can do that. That's that's fine. Well, yeah. Our phone that's our phone number here is six four six 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 eight two four three three. David has decided that if you want to call and pick up that photo, please do six four six 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 eight two four three three. And uh, awesome. So uh, you're thinking to yourself, Uncle Jim, you've, we've had some great birthdays. That's got to be the end of the list. But alas, it is not. I always, always do the Klingons, and I always do them last. Not necessarily because they're bigger than the rest of the actors, because we've had some doozies tonight, but because I like Klingons. So that's my thing. So we want to say happy birthday and kapla to Sterling Marser, who played Todd in the TNG episode Birthright Part 2. He also, mm-hmm. well, not him, not, not, no, just, not the but actor, his but the, his character actually returns on Lower Decks in That's Season right. 2. And it, it, he, he's a great character. It's, um, well, uh, what was the name of the episode? Um, two oh, Ships. Modge Dodge. Yeah. That's it. it was- uh, which is which is which is three ships in Klingon, and right. his character is the one who saves the day and murders the captain for being dishonorable, and that is the character of Tog. It's not voiced by the same actor, but it's the same character. So happy birthday! And uh, the next two are are awesome. Wait a minute, I lied. Dun dun dun! I lied. We have a five tuplet. That's right. We got five birthdays. Five. So many. So, many. so, so we want to say happy birthday to John Larroquette, who played Moss in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. He's the Klingon 
that beams them back up to the ship, and Captain Kirk says, I'll kill you later. And then when he's walking off, he says, you said you would kill me. And Kirk says, I lied. Bring him to the break. That's him. And so that's we have five different birthdays from five different episodes and movies tonight. Wow. And Jim, wow. can I just can I just tell you that malts? I love malts because we some you know back in the day when Attack Wing was putting out lots and lots of stuff, we always uh, reviewed Star Trek Attack Wing game content. And malts has a totally awesome card that is very unique in the game. He says, "Action! If your ship is not cloaked, discard this card to target a friendly ship within range one to two of your ship. Take up to three crew upgrades from that ship." and deploy them to your ship, even if it exceeds your restrictions, or take up to three crew upgrades from your ship and put them on the other ship. So basically, he allows you to do the big crew switcheroo from one ship to the other, which is totally thematic with what you were just talking about. I love it. And, well, and, and not only that, his character, if you guys are old like me, and you remember when Star Trek comic books were coming out, this character, the character of Moss, actually, and I know this is not canon, but is the first Klingon in Starfleet because he stays on the Enterprise with the crew in the comic books, which, oh. which predates Worf, and I loved it. I loved it. Interesting. And, of course, it's not canon, but it is it's just a little trivia fact that old guys like me can throw out there to people like you. So... And I believe, I think it was DC Comics that had the, um, or was it Marvel? It well, changed hands so many DC, times. Well, DC had it uh, like back in the in the time that the show was actually on. So. Yeah, I think it might have been DC. Yeah, but anyways, you guys DC can go back, back those, and those years. look that up. Star Trek, the motion picture, Star Trek Two, Star Trek Three time. I think it was DC. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's on the crew of the Enterprise at that time. So happy birthday. And the last one on my list is a big one. And we want to say happy birthday and send all the well wishes we can to Ken Mitchell, who brought to life the character of Cole in, in Star Trek Discovery season one, Cole Shaw in Star Trek Discovery season two, and also played Tenevik, who was the guardian of the time crystals. And he also did Aurelio in Discovery Season 3. Or was that 4? 3, Season 3. Yeah, Season 3. And uh, we wish all the best to Ken Mitchell. So that fills up our Klingons and our entire birthday list. But wait, but wait, but wait, but wait. I have one left. And I hope, I hope that he's tuned in up in Canada right now. Because as... As Eric just said, way back in the day, when this podcast was was very young and budding, it wasn't quite the huge success that it is today, um, I was going through co-hosts left and right until I found the current team that I have, my awesome Trek experts that are with me today. Uh, But back in the day, um, I was always looking for co-hosts, and I was doing Star Trek Attack Wing, and I did a show on Star Trek Attack Wing, and there was this really, really awesome YouTube person um, that was doing Star Trek Attack Wing games. And I sent him a message. I said, hey, would, would, would you and Captain Stu like to come on the podcast and talk about Attack Wing? So Captain Stu and GM Chris 
came on the podcast, and our Attack Wing show with them was the most popular show we had ever done at that time. And we had fans calling in. We had our chat room full, and it was a huge show. And that was the show that got me thinking, maybe we should be talking about Attack Wing. So I asked GM Chris if he would be interested in joining me on the podcast and doing Attack Wing. And, of course, he said yes, and the rest is history. GM Chris has been around with us doing the podcast since, well, longer than anybody with the exception of Admiral Ken. And uh, I don't think that I would be around doing the podcast right now if it wasn't for GM Chris way back in the day. And GM Chris still hangs around with us. He'll pop on the show from time to time. He used to do the editing for us when we were putting our podcast on other um, locations. And he's always around in the background. He's always floating around. He's always in our thoughts. He's always a part of the show, even if you guys don't see him. And I did play a little a little um, clip that GM Chris recorded for us on our previous commercial break. So I just want to say, send out a very, very happy, happy birthday to GM Chris and let him know that we're always thinking of him. And there's always a seat at our table for GM Chris. And he's a huge part of this show, even if he's not here all the time. And thank you so much for helping to keep us on track and to help mold the show into what it's become today. And I also want to say thank you so much to Vax and the, at the shipyard. And if <laughs> yeah. you guys have ever listened to the podcast in the past, you'll know who Vax is. So happy birthday to GM Chris and Vax. And you know what that means, guys? We have to do it one more time. Again. Uh, yeah, again, here we go. With another now for feet Seems that everywhere you look today There's misery and greed I guess you know the earth is going to crash into the sun But that's no reason why we shouldn't have a little fun So if you think it's scary If it's more than you can take Just blow out the candles and have a piece of cake Happy birthday Happy birthday to you Happy birthday Happy birthday to you Wow And happy birthday to GM Chris. Now, Eric and Charles, did you guys ever listen to the podcast uh, back in those days? Well, here's what I will say. The entire reason that I actually got involved with this podcast was I got super, super addicted to Star Trek Attack Wing at one point. I discovered the game. Actually, my wife bought me a starter set uh, for my birthday and I think it was about a year after the game came out, she went to the game store, our local game store here, Guardian Games here in Portland. And she went to the store and she talked to my good friend, Cable Hashtani, who at the time was not my good friend, but became my good friend. And she said, hey, I got this guy I know who loves tabletop games. He loves Star Trek. What do you got for me? And he said, Star Trek Attack Wing. And so I immediately went out and started looking for places to learn more about how to build better fleets how to combine cards in cool ways. And this podcast was one of the things that came up during my search. And so uh, as Charles and, uh, and Jim well know, you know, I got involved in the podcast by just starting to call in 
And I basically started calling in because of Star Trek Attack Wing. So I have a very near and dear connection to Chris, um, Star Trek Attack Wing, all of that sort of stuff. And I will tell you that I'm still good friends with Chris and I still participate regularly with him. Uh, I'm involved in an online uh, Star Trek Adventures campaign with him. I play a Vulcan named Sarlacc, who is the chief engineer of the USS Carpathia and uh, still having lots of good times with him. So yeah, I, I, the Star Trek Attack Wing is very near and dear to my heart. The reason I actually got involved in this podcast three and a half years ago, January, 2018, whatever that adds up to. So yeah, absolutely. Love that game. Yeah. And thank it's you Chris, fun game. Yeah, for bringing me into the fold and Jim and you guys too, like Charles and Jim, you guys were already doing the podcast at that point and you guys let me call in and just kind of keep calling in. And I just kind of sort of got absorbed and became part of the podcast. And I really appreciate that. Like like a sponge absorbing information. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, it's, and you go back to my side of it. One of Jim's previous co-hosts mentioned the show, said he would listen to it, and he had to go off and do something else, and said, "Hey, want to take my seat?" I said, "Sure." And I had called in a few times. Love the show, and you guys invited me. Invited me to let me come in and join in the fun. And here we are today. Yeah, a Incredible. legend was born. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was, we're like the Beatles coming together. Holy <laughs> <laughs> question! That's setting the bar wow. pretty high. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're we're good. We're good. All right, guys. Well, we have we have one more segment to go, and then we're going to talk about Star Trek Discovery. Phone number here is 646-668-2433. Uh, poor David's hanging here on the line. Can't decide whether he's going to get an Arium picture or not. It's up to you. Uh, give us a call, 646-668-2433. And, uh, yeah, I'll send one to you. It's that simple. So, guys, it's time for convention, convention. Calendar, 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 calendar. All right, guys, we're going to go through our convention calendar list. If you're interested in any of the conventions we're about to mention, I recommend that you contact the hotel or location where the convention is being held for more information, or maybe you can... uh, Find them on the internet, okay? So we want to start off our convention calendar with Chicago Comic-Con and Entertainment Expo 2021, December 10th through 12th at McCormick Place in Chicago, Illinois. TFCon Toronto 2021, December 10th through the 12th at the Hilton Missaquia Meadow. Oh, God, I've got to blow this up. There we go. Metaval <laughs> in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. I can't read all these S's and M's all scrammed together. My old eyes are having trouble. We'd also like to tell you guys about Fan Expo in Dallas at the Holiday Market 2021, December 11th, in the Irving Convention Center at Los Colonos, Irving, Texas. And the last one on my list is Ocean City Comic Con 2021, December 11th, at the Roland E. Powell Convention Center in Ocean City, Maryland. Eric, what's on your list? 
We've also got Comic-Con Portugal 2021, December 9th through the 12th at Parque das Neosoyas in Lisbon, Portugal. Wow, that's pretty cool. we got some international ones here. But wait, more international conventions. Palermo Comic-Con Convention 2021. i got to tell you guys, I've been to Palermo. It is a really cool little town. December 9th through 12th at the Cantiere Culturale alla Zisa. Thanks, Jim, for trying to trick me up, but I got it in Palermo, you, Italy. You, you, you did better than me. <laughs> We're also talking about the Great Lakes Holiday Expo 2021, December 11th. Wait, that's the same weekend. Holy smokes, there's a bunch of these at Lorenzo Cultural Center in Clinton Township, Michigan. And finally on my list is Mission City Hero Fest, December 11th. There's a theme here in San Antonio Shrine Auditorium, San Antonio Texas. Charles, what do you got for us on the calendar? Well, let's keep going with Super World Comic Expo. December 11th, Holiday Inn and Suites, Overland Park West, Overland Park, Kansas. London Comic Mart. December 12th, Royal National Hotel, London, USA. Oz Comic Con, Melbourne. December 11th and 12th, Melbourne Convention Center. And exhibit Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. And Capital Capital Trade Shows. December 12th, Jim Durrell Recreation Center, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Man, people, there can be a lot of convention going on next weekend. (laughs) Twelve, Twelve conventions we talked about, people, and every single one of them is next weekend. Not next, not this coming, but the the following. Yeah, so crazy. Yep. Coming week, but next week. <laughs> crazy. So guys, we're gonna take yeah, another yeah. quick break here, and when we come back, we're gonna be talking about Star Trek Discovery episode two, Anomaly. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Black alert, y'all. We are about to make the jump to some serious spoiler territory. It- and we're back. And that's right. You heard Wesley Crusher give you the warning. We are going to spoil the episode Anomaly, which aired on Thanksgiving. I don't think it's really too much of a spoil because it's a week old, but that's okay. So what can we say about it? First of all, Eric, what did our fans have to say about it? Well, uh, we always love to talk about what our fans thought about this, and we asked them on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the best, what would you give Anomaly? Top fan Jim Nelson said he gives it 9. I very rarely give out of 10s. In spite of its size, I'm not thinking the Anomaly is natural. Secondly, it looks like Michael's losing the captain's chair. Saru belongs there. Michael is the star of the show, and I believe appropriately so. The captain's chair will limit her adventures too much. That is a very interesting perspective, Jim Nelson, top fan. Wow, Ooh. I love that one. Uh, Marco Di Giarlamo, thank you. Hopefully I got that right. Most excellent, he says. However, one scientific gap should not have been in there. Tilly's idea that it was caused by binary black holes makes some sort of sense, but... Then she says that they could not be detected because matter was not falling into them. What? Under what conditions is a black hole not drawing matter into itself? 
Very good point. This alone should have eliminated the black hole theory. Six out of ten. Boom. Marco, I love your scientific sort of breakdown of that episode. Good job. Top fan Jason D. Lewis says eight. Moving the story forward very nicely. Pierre Farrand says it's okay. A six maybe. Thomas Marsh, an eight. Justin J. McLaughlin, a seven. C. Barker, a ten. Jeffrey Jenkins, a 10. Top fan Zesty Zoe only gave it a 3 out of 10. But Kai Kosu Skog gave it a 7 out of 10. So when you add all of those up and divide by the number of listeners that responded to this poll, we have a fan score of 7.4, which is, I would say, pretty solid, but not knocking it out of the park. No, no. And, and I, you know, I'm so glad that Star Trek is back. I, I As much as I love... Lower Decks, and I love Prodigy. I got to tell you guys, nothing beats live-action Star Trek. Yeah, that's true. It, 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 it's just not yeah. the same. Um, I mean, Lower, it, De- it, Lower Decks is totally – I love Lower Decks so, I love so it. much. And yet, when you put a real person in those places, it really does make a difference, Jim. I think that's a great observation. I mean, I loved Weege Dodge. That was a great yeah, episode. <laughs> I loved it. Um, yeah. But, But – you know, watch, I mean, watching Michael Burnham in the captain's chair and the anomaly and, and, and the whole, nothing beats live action Star Trek. Uh, yeah, and I'm not taking it. away yeah. from the animated shows at all. I love those two and I enjoy talking about them on this podcast, but my God, the visual effects, the seeing it with your own eyes, nothing beats it. And this episode was just one of those examples. I loved it. When we got to see it at the premiere, what, three weeks ago? Was it? Uh, two. Yeah, it was, no, three weeks. Yeah, right. Yeah. Three weeks ago. We saw it just before it released. Yeah, yeah. Here, we had to wait we three weeks to talk about this episode. I absolutely loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. I, I can't. I can't say enough about it. The first thing I want to say is I really, really like the relationships and the way they're building them yeah. on the show. Yeah. Um, they've really come a long way in the four seasons and it's, you're, I'm starting to feel more comfortable with these characters and I'm starting to know them just a little bit better. And, and I think that the writers have figured them out and the actors have slipped into the, into the characters and that all the nuances of these characters are, have been developed and they're all there. And as usual, I have a couple of clips that I'm going to play for you guys um, to make the points that I'm making. One of them is last season when when um, um, uh, uh, the Wicked Witch was taking over the ship there, whose name I can't recall right now, um, Osira, <laughs> when Osira was trying to take over the ship, and Michael Burnham comes down and literally takes Stamets puts him in this giant bubble and shoots him on an airlock. <laughs> and that particular they scene I thought was, 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 was beautifully written, was beautifully yeah. acted. Uh, the whole scene was like, we, I mean, you could see the pain that Burnham was going through. And, and also the, 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 the fear in Stamets' eyes and his voice. Uh, at what was about to happen that he didn't want to leave his family behind. It was, it was an incredible scene. And we talked about it 
last year, but it was referenced, an anomaly. And the way it was referenced was absolutely just spot on, just perfect, and not the way I thought it was going to be referenced. And um, obviously, I have a little clip for you here. It's a clip that I just entitled, Out the Airlock. Only two people who can operate this war drive together into the accretion cloud of an unknown astrophysical entity? You might as well blow me out an airlock. Oh. Too soon. Probably too soon. But still, it's madness. Yes, which is why you'll be going as a hollow. Oh, well, in that case... Your body will be right here on Discovery the entire time. The anomaly creates enormous distortions. We might not be able to maintain a hollow signal. Right, which is why we'll be using a tether to help Bookship maintain proximity to Discovery. And if we have to, we will use it to pull him out. And I want you on the bridge, listening in on comms. Let me know if you have any reason for concern. Yes, Captain. Blow me out an airlock? It was humor. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right, guys. So I want to talk a little bit about that that clip. And there's one more thing I want to say. Um, I think that Dr. Kolber is quickly becoming one of my favorite doctors. I think that he's becoming kind of like a ship's counselor. And I like how Tilly went to him for help and Detmer went to him for help and and Burnham came to him. And he's really becoming like a very pivotal, very important cog in the crew of Discovery. And And I really like the way he's being written and the way they're handling him. So let's talk about that scene a little bit, guys. What, what did you think about that blow me out an airlock comment by Stamets? What did you think, Charles? Well, I love Or I love, Eric. I, I, I don't want Or even David. Or even David, for that matter. I was going to say, <laughs> part of the line that I liked out of that is, oh, blow me out of an airlock. Oh, too soon. That is such a current reference. Because that's not a reference I've heard as much for recently, where people start saying, oh, too soon, and replying, is it too early to be discussing that incident, uh, that incident that happened to them? It's like, I love <coughs> commonly so straight, and he doesn't throw out the comic line. And yes, that was a great... <coughs> <coughs> Great, great comical line. I love how he threw it out there. That was well written in there. I think the yeah. writers ought to get a compliment for that one. That was set perfectly. Absolutely. What'd you think, Eric? Did you did you oh, like man. that scene? I absolutely love that scene. I I completely I think agree with what you're saying, Jim. Which is that Colbert to me, is becoming my absolutely favorite doctor. And I I will tell you that I do not say that lightly because I love Bones. I love Bashir. um, You know, I I love all of the doctors that we've seen throughout all of Star Trek. But this one, the the reason I think it's working for me is that um, Colbert is tracking right along with kind of modern society in terms of recognition that Empathy is a really important thing. And I think that that's one of the things that we 
talk about sometimes on the podcast. We talk about it uh, relative to management of our Facebook page and the things that we will or will not block on our Facebook page uh, because we like to create a safe environment for friends. And Colbert, to me, is the guy who just generates the empathy for the show. And, you know, you've got his his partner, um, Stamets, who is like, kind of empathetic, but also kind of like completely not empathetic and standoffish, which, which I love um, that the, the, the dynamic between those two. And in this past episode that we're talking about here, the way that Tilly goes to him and says, Hey, you know what, bro, I got some stuff that is going on in my life that I just want to talk about. Do you think you'd be down with that? And he says, yes, that to me talks about a very healthy um, mental health framework that exists in the future where, you know, these people have to spend uh, months, years at a time with each other on this little tiny starship. You guys don't realize, I mean, yeah, they're a little bit bigger than an aircraft carrier, but not that much. And it's a fairly small space and there's a lot of psychological stuff that goes on. So I am 100% down with what the writers are doing right now with Colbert. I've seen some stuff about him maybe having superpowers and stuff. I don't know. I haven't seen stuff that's going on these days. But but I will tell you that I just love the way they are writing him as a doctor. And I will tell you that Wilson Cruz is just playing the heck out of that character as well. And and we have we have a, we have a caller on the line here. Let me see if I can get this thing to work. There we go. Hey, good evening. Thank you for calling Trek Talking. What's your name and where are you calling us from tonight? Hello? I guess that must be for me. It's Nate from Vegas. Would that be Nate from Vegas? Happy birthday. Yeah, (laughs) thanks. That's the birthday boy. (laughs) One year closer to you, Uncle Jim. That's, you're getting there. You're catching up. <laughs> Happy birthday, Nate. Thanks. Let's see. And wow, we have another caller. This is a record. Oh. Yeah. Wow. This isn't Nate, though. Hey. Good evening. Nope. Thank you for calling Trek Talk. And what's your name? And where are you calling us from tonight? Can you hear me? Area code seven zero eight. Are you there? Hello? Yep. Guess not. I guess not. Okay. So uh, let's continue on. Let's let's continue on with our our Star Trek Discovery conversation here. So um, another thing that I really, really enjoyed is when they brought back Saru. And I was so happy when Saru became captain last season. I thought he really earned the chair, especially coming back from the Mirror Universe. When he leaves with Sukal at the end of last year, and we thought, well, Saru is gone, uh, but he's not. He comes back in this episode. And the way he comes back in this episode was, uh, I thought, was outstanding. And the relationship that Saru and Michael Burnham have, to me, resonates like a Kirk Spock type of relationship. Like, like, like they're like brother and sister to each other. She was his first officer when he was captain now. He's going to return the favor. And the two of them just just so well together. And there was this scene in this episode when Saru does come back and and offer his assistance as first officer. And that would be this scene right here. 
Starfleet is why I'm needed now. Yes, I heard word that you were offered the command of the USS Sojourner. Congratulations. I told Admiral Vance I would gladly return to the chair one day. This is not that time. Our mentor, Philippa Giorgio, knew the value of another set of trusted eyes, especially in times of crisis. I asked you to be those eyes for me when I became captain. Now, it would be my honor, and indeed my privilege, to do the same for you as your number one, if you'll have me. I, I really I thought that scene was 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 the perfect way to bring Saru back. So, uh, Eric, what do you think? Yeah, I mean uh, Saru is amazing, and I do think you know you mentioned Spock and Kirk. Um, I do think that that's a fair comparison because um, Spock was constantly the one who kind of kept Kirk from you know, maybe following his emotions too much and kind of going over the edge in some situations. But then Kirk was also the guy who would just be like, no, Spock, shut up. I'm going to do what I want. And I think that um, actually Burnham and Saru have a much more, I did you say brother, sister, Jim, earlier? I, I feel like that's a pretty fair comparison because not only that, but we have we have some of the books upon which to draw, you know, some some canon adjacent references here, and we know that that um, Saru and Burnham have kind of always been at odds with one another, but I think it's through a lens of mutual respect, and I really really think that's coming through here in this season because it's it's almost like when they when they see each other in this scene. It's almost like Saru expected Burnham to say that to him. And he was like, of course I'm going to do this because I recognize that when you and I get together, one plus one equals three. And I really, really like that. That is a super cool aspect of this scene. So yeah, I'm a hundred percent on board. I think he makes a great um, first officer. I also thought he made a great captain. Um, Burnham is a very interesting captain, and I actually am liking her more and more as time goes by. We can get into that just a little bit more. But in terms of this scene, I love the way they bring him as as first officer, for sure. And I I like how in the scene where she calls him Mr. Saru, and that's what made me think of the Mr. Spock um, reference. It's like, you know, Mr. Saru. And I do – I think that's some fan service right there. I really, really do think that is them bringing the TOS fans into the fold and saying, you know, this guy's got this like short name. It doesn't have a first part or a last part. Uh, They don't really refer to him by his rank because his rank is kind of bounced around. So let's call him Mr. Mr. Lends a, um, a formality to it. Don't forget that he's an ambassador to Kaminar. He wears that little pin on his uniform that that, uh, represents community and service, uh, which I think is a very important aspect of his character as well. So you think community and service, 
you think of a person who's in a support role, a person who like doesn't need to shine in the spotlight, but everything happens because of them. And I think that's the perfect place for Saru. And, and, and Burnham's actions reminded me of, I, I, have, I had flashes of Kirk when she's taken off and, and, and flying yeah. in the shuttle there. I was like, you know, it's like, well, this, is, and, this is what and, Kirk would do, you know? Picard would never have say, done Jim, that. Here's what I'll say. I actually see flashes of Pike in her. Because she has this attitude of, like, there is no obstacle I can't overcome. And while, while Kirk is, you know, he's willing to, like, cheat at the Kobayashi Maru and that kind of stuff, don't forget that, that Pike is the very first captain to say, um, what does he say in the cage? He says, uh, there's no cage. Oh, he says something about the cage. He's like, there's no cage I can't get of, or I don't believe that there's any cage that can hold me or something. I can't remember the exact words. I wish I could, but it's that same kind of um, concept where, you know, Kirk takes the Kobayashi Maru and says, well, I'll take this impossible situation and make it work. Pike was the originator of that idea, I think, back in the cage. And I think that that is what makes uh, Burnham such a, absolute direct outcropping from Gene Roddenberry's original ideals because it's like that concept passes right through Pike, right through Kirk into Captain Burnham. And how about you, Charles? What do you think? Well, I had a comment on that scene, that the previous scene, he walks on the bridge and the crew member says, Captain. And Saru's like, no, I'm, I'm not playing captain right now. And I forgot which crew member it was, but one of them said, how about Mr. Saru? And the second time I heard that line, I thought, that's such a perfect line because that kind of portrays Saru similar as a wood Spock. Because there are many times that I believe we heard the reference of Mr. Spock on the bridge. And it's like, okay, we're giving some special honor to this character that is well-deserved. He doesn't need to be known by a rank. He just needs to be known as Mr. Which I think is great respect for all the work that he has done. And I love that. I love that part of the scene. I love that conversation that I'll be your number one. <clears throat> in the uh, one of the, the first book we read in the novel, you read through that, and you kind of got that feeling of, oh gee, these two have almost a sibling sibling rivalry between them, because we got that feel from the book, and it's like, yeah, I've seen that in the series too, where they really they were fighting for the respect and the attention of their captain and how it passed in from past from there. And I think it was well earned the fact that, yeah, these two had a good fight to get a competition together. They worked so well together in the process. Absolutely. And, uh, Birthday boy. What do you think about Saru becoming Mr. Saru 
and becoming the first officer to burn them. Do you think that's reminiscent of Kirk and Spock? Uh, well, uh, if you recall, and I'm sure you guys do, at one point there were three captains aboard the Enterprise. Captain Spock. Yes, there was. Yep. Captain Kirk and Captain Spock. So that's right. As as strange as it may seem, it has been done before. There is precedence for it. Uh, so uh, although I him coming back as number one, I feel it's more just because he's one of the stars of the show. I I do like he that the fact that he was offered a ship, um, and hopefully he will take it after this season, uh, just as Captain Sulu took command of the Excelsior. Um, so, so yeah, so there, at one point there were three captains aboard the Enterprise, so I'm, I'm fine with the, there being multiple captains, um, but, uh, yeah, so that, that's just my thoughts. I just wanted to point out that there, 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 there is precedence for it. Absolutely. And David, what do you think? You, you like, you like the Mr. Saru thing? Sorry for if I'm all too loud at all, at all, but, uh, I don't know. I'm just glad they didn't say missus. <laughs> yeah, that would have that would have been weird. <laughs> um, I honestly did not put two to two together about Mister Park or um, uh, uh, oh my gosh, what's his name, Shuvu, because uh, I I don't know. There's just something about this show that doesn't really strike me to go back and forth of um, the original and what we're seeing now, but um, I think it just had something to do with the the new age of Star Trek, which is not a bad thing or a good thing, but, you know, it has its own path, so, I don't know, I never really put two two together, so I can't really comment about it. (laughs) that's, That's absolutely fine. And I have one more clip I want to play for you guys. And this is a clip that involves uh, Adira and, uh, and Tilly. And uh, it's called I'm Stamitzing Right Now. I have a cracked rib. Gravitational fluctuations have exceeded all the anticipated parameters. Something has changed. We need to figure out what. I've been working on a new predictive algorithm, but the data's so limited that I... Well, did you include Nautilus's gravimetric data from the station in your calculations? Of course. I've done this before. You don't have to check my work. Hey, you don't get to do that, okay? We've all done this before. We still double and triple check our work. Now make sure that you've included the irregular gravitational strain on the ship. Please. Thank you. Great. We're all under a lot of pressure. And what happened on that station was... And you know Adira's just trying to impress you, right? They really look up to you. Okay, uh, I've adjusted the numbers to account for the gravimetric variant, and we have a problem. Captain, uh, good news we know when the next disturbance is gonna hit. Bad news, it's in two seconds. Everybody, break! So... I loved it when she referred to herself as I'm Stamitzing. And uh, I was just like, oh, my God, that's just <laughs> Stamitzing. That's a new one on me. Uh, but the thing I liked about the scene was her relationship with Adira. Now Adira is a ensign. She's been promoted kind of like Wesley was. So she's working now with Tilly. I'm sorry, 
They are working with Tilly. I'll, I'll get that right eventually. Good That's job, Jim. Good job. Too. I'm proud of you. Um, so so the, the fact that they're working together now on the bridge and, and uh, you know, Adira wants Tilly's, you know, uh, uh, respect and she wants to prove to Tilly that, that, you know, they deserve to be on the bridge. So, and then, then the fact that Tilly said I'm stamitzing just, just got me laughing. So I just wanted to throw that out there that I, I like the, where they're bringing the character of Adira and Tilly is having some problems as well. And as I said earlier, she goes to Colbert and wants to talk to Colbert about what she's feeling and what she's going through. So I wanted to throw that out there. So we're, we're, we're just about 31 seconds to be out of time here. So what did you guys think about that scene real quick with her stamitzing? Anybody? Uh, just real quick, I love that they have put Tilly now into a mentorship role. They've got some youngers underneath her. She's got her little quirkiness to her, and yet uh, that's okay because the people she is mentoring have their own um, quirkinesses that uh, help them relate to the people around them. So I absolutely love this scene, and I love their interaction with each other. The, it, there's another scene that we didn't get a chance to get to where they sort of gesture to each other about the wave that uh, book has to ride to get out of the situation that he's in. So really, really love where they're taking Tilly this season. Now, before we, before we get to grading the episode, I just want to talk real quick about the anomaly. Now, when I saw the episode and I saw the pictures, I immediately thought it looks like V'ger. Now I went back and watched Star Trek, the motion picture yesterday. And I got to tell you, it, it 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 looks exactly like V'ger. Um right I mean, yeah, it does look like V'ger, except don't think that it is. And the reason why I don't think that it is, even though it looks just like V'ger, and it does, there's one difference that V'ger didn't have in the motion picture that it had in this in the in the Discovery episode, and that is when Spock is flying into V'ger um, he sees the um, uh, sensor in Ilea's uh, throat as the center of Viger. And as he gets closer, uh, it, he, he sees the Klingon battle cruisers. He sees Space Station Epsilon 9. He sees all these other things. Well, on Discovery, it looks like a giant eye. And the center of the eye, the iris of the eye, doesn't become these other digital things like it did in the motion picture. So I don't think that it's V'ger, but I did think that it was at first. And I was so, I actually had to go back and watch the motion picture to see exactly what that graphic looked like. And it's very similar. And in fact, it almost looks the same except for the iris. And I think to me, the iris on discovery looks more like a giant eye. Um, to me. So what, what do you guys think? What do you, what do you think? Nate, birthday boy, what, what do you think? Do you think it's V'ger? A- and if not, what do you think the anomaly is all about? Um, I don't know. I guess if you're saying it looks uh, spot on for it, pretty much, uh, it could very well be um, that uh, could be uh, a, a good callback to, because we, 
I mean, uh, I believe fan theory has always uh, thought that that, that V'ger arrived at the Borg homeworld. Um, I don't know if that, uh, and you have all the AI stuff going on with, uh, with this series. Uh, so it, it, it could be a, a linking to the, those fan theories. It's, it's, it, it is very, very similar. What do you think, David? I honestly think, sorry, wrong microphone. I honestly think that the, uh, um, the anomaly might actually be a connection to the, uh, the rest of the series. I think they're going to start bringing back characters that we never thought that would be in the same episode together. I just think it's like some sort of wormhole, like a time portal of some sort, like Star Trek is known for. So I honestly think because there was this whole rumors about Captain Archer making his debut to come back, you know. I don't know. Could be a thing where they're going to start putting everybody together to go after one giant Yeager, probably. <laughs> I, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. How about you, Charles? What do you think? What are your early predictions on the anomaly? I'm going to go pass it on to Eric, and he's got some ideas, and I want to get on a different subject when he's done. All, All right, right, Eric. Well, yeah, here's what I'll say, Jim. I like the feature theory. I think that it has been one that has been talked about for a little bit, and I think it's pretty solid. But I want to give you a counter theory. Here's what I'm thinking. If you go back to Voyager, Season 6, Episode 8, there's an episode called One Small Step, where they actually follow the exploits of the first manned mission to Mars, which uh, was at that time supposed to occur in the year 2032. And in that episode, um, the captain of the ship, uh, John Kelly, um, captain of the Ares 4 encounters a gravitational anomaly that is pretty elliptically shaped uh, in much the same way that an eye might be shaped. Um, it also kind of displays some of the same characteristics in that it changes direction and can be tracked and that kind of stuff by the Voyager crew. Uh, in that episode, the Delta Flyer sort of gets caught in the anomaly, and it's a lot of it is about the rescue of the Delta Flyer and that sort of stuff. But this captain, John Kelly, uh, from back in the past, the back in the 21st century, um, is still a part of the story that occurs, of course, uh, in the 24th century uh, with the Voyager. So I encourage people to go back and watch that episode, uh, season six, episode eight, one small step. Take a look and tell me if you think that might actually be the origins of what's going on with our weird gravitational anomaly here in Star Trek Discovery. Just out of curiosity, could that also be in a combination with Sphere Builders? The whole uh, Zendi plotline? Well, that would be awesome because I am a big fan of the Sphere builder, Builders and I don't think they were explored enough. I think they're maybe a little separate in this case. That would be my guess, but I, I don't know. Nobody really knows, right? And and one more thing before we're out of time. Oh, Charles, what did you you said you wanted to cover a topic real quick? Yes, you were talking about Adira, and I wanted to go to a different direction. And Gray, 
I, their conversation with Gray, I thought, was fascinating, especially when they mentioned the soon body. Picard. And yep. they referenced Picard. I love that point in there that Picard is, Admiral Picard is referenced, which ties Picard right into the timeline. Yeah, so 800-year-old technology is introduced, a new body for Grey. And not only that, Charles, but this whole, like, concept that they're bringing forward, and I don't know how people, like, how much people follow this, but, like, this idea that somebody is finding their true self by incorporating into a new body, I think, really uh, hits a lot of nails on the head in terms of 21st century paradigms for a lot of people who are watching this show right now, too. So love that component of it. And I like how, how Colbert specifically said it didn't work. It, it worked for Picard, but it, they never tried it again because it, it didn't work. And, and that, that was an easy way out for why people didn't go into immortal bodies after Picard, because it didn't work. So, and Jim was, then you know. missed, missed one big key point in the episode, too. Zora. Yes, yeah, Zora. Yeah, the first time they actually refer to her by name. name. Yep. Yes, yep. she has. She actually has her name now. Yeah. Yes. And same From, voice. Direct tie to Calypso. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. You guys, Charles, so, I'm so glad you brought that up. I love that so much in this episode when she is in her little Vulcan personal holodeck. And she tells Zora to take her home, and it takes, you know, the holodeck uh, sort of recedes, and she goes back to her regular room. That was just such a special moment because, yeah. A, you're getting Burnham, like, on Vulcan, kind of connecting with her own prior self. B, you get the Zora connection, which is really cool. I mean, just great scene, great scene. Right. Yeah. And and so – uh, Oh, you name the computer, and, but no, she named herself. Self, you're right. <laughs> yes. All right, guys. So before we have to go, what would you rate the episode, David? Scale of one to ten. Ah, sorry. What you, uh, scale of one to ten. What, what would you? Yeah, I think I'd probably give it about a seven. Seven? All right, we got a seven. Birthday boy, Nate, what do you think? One to ten. Uh, I'm going to go pretty much there. Seven, eight, probably an eight. Eight, all right. Eric, one to ten. I'm going to go a little higher. I'll go 8.7, and I just really like the way they handled the aftermath of the explosion of Book's Planet and his portrayal of the way that that would affect a person. Love that in this episode, too. 8.7. Charles, 1 to 10. Definitely a good solid 8. They did a lot eight. I think, of good work in this episode. It makes me want to know what's happening. And I think I'm going to go with an 8.675309. Just a tad higher than uh, Eric did. And our fan score was 7.4? Yep. I think. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, so we're, we're you know... Huh. A little, higher. a little bit lower than we were, but hey, that's cool. So listen, guys, we squeezed it all in. I knew it was going to be a tough show, and I, but we did it. We got everything in, which is awesome. I want to say thank you so, so much 
to Doug Brody for coming on and sharing some stories with us about Star Trek 2009, J.J. Abrams, uh, No Money in the Future. That was a great story. And we definitely um, would like to have him come back and uh, talk with us some more about what he does in the movie. So thank you so much for, um, for Doug for coming on and chatting with us. It was a lot of fun. I want to say thank you so much to David for calling in from the mall while he's out Christmas shopping. Thank you so much, David. A mall. <laughs> and uh, we also got to say thank you so much to the birthday boy, Nate, for taking time out of his hectic, busy birthday to call in and chat with us. Thank you so much, Nate. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks a lot. And also thank you to my right-hand man, Charles. Thank you for hanging out and Trek talking with us tonight, Charles. Oh, thank you. I kind of cut, tried to cut short last last episode, and we didn't have anything missed over Thanksgiving, so got to catch up on all those tracks. A lot of catching up. And, of course, that means that Eric has got to be my left-hand man if, if Charles is my right-hand man. So thank you to my left-hand yeah. man, Eric, for hanging out and Trek talking with us tonight. Thank you so much, Eric. I will take it, and I had a blast as always. Thank you so much, guys. And uh, listen, guys, next week we're going to talk about um, episode four, Choose to Live, which aired tonight. I intentionally did not watch it um, because I want to talk about it next week, and I didn't want to get confused with this week's episode. And so, so I haven't watched it yet, but I will watch it with Jamie tomorrow, and we'll be ready to talk about isn't it, it next week. Isn't it episode three? Jim, isn't it is episode yeah. three and not it four? Is. It is. It's three. Yep. See, okay. senility is just setting in. I'm it's just okay. my tongue is dry. I'm, I, love you, I'm long in the tooth. I'm just my brain <laughs> is slipping. I'm just I'm forget. I'm gonna go get some diapers and get my walker. I'm just it's okay, I'm Jim. Fast. We've all been there. Yeah, I just I'm getting there, <laughs> taking a nose dive. But anyways, um, I, and and most importantly, thank you to each and every single one of you guys that takes the time to listen to this podcast. We really appreciate. And it's so much fun that you guys choose to spend your time listening to us, Trek Talk. It's, it's just awesome. Thank you so much. So without any further ado, I want to say thank you. And I want to say to everybody, be safe. And, and I'm sorry, stay safe and be good to each other. And hailing frequencies are closed. Good night, everybody. Night, y'all. Night. Night. All right, then. Everybody ready? Yes, yes Captain. Let's fly.